Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. My name is Lucas Mack, and this podcast is all about treating people like people and nothing less. And today, I'm very honored to bring a veteran on, Christian Armstrong, who has an Instagram account that we connected on over Instagram. And my brother has, my brother who hosts a podcast called The Soulful Hunter, had him on. Christian's a hunter, a father, husband, and a veteran. And he shares in this episode his journey of facing the darkness and trauma to finding the light and love that he was searching for. This is a beautiful episode. Christian, I'm so honored that you joined. Thank you again for your service, not only while you served in the military uniform, but also your service to bring in the message of fathers and husbands leading with love. I hope you enjoyed this episode. With that, I'm honored to have Christian join me. Christian, how you doing, brother? Good, man. I wish we would have got the the first portion of our, our conversation. I, out, you know? I know. I know. We, had, we had some gold in there, but this, oh, it, this is going to have to be like a, a three, four version series, maybe. Totally. I love it. Let's do it. Let's rock it. <laughs> I was thinking, have you ever read the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress? I haven't. But I'm, I'm getting a lot of good references from you, so I'm going to be taking notes because oh, you've already given me a couple. Oh, my gosh. you got to read the book Pilgrim's Progress. For anyone listening, Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm looking. Pilgrim's Progress is a Christian classic that was written. Uh, let me grab it. Let me see. Uh, the actual title is The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, The Pilgrim's Progress was written by a guy named John Bunyan. John Bunyan was jailed in London uh, for, for all sorts of stuff, it's one of which was preaching uh, the Bible at a time when it wasn't legal to preach outside of the, the Anglican church. And inside, while he was jailed, he wrote this book called Pilgrim, The Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, your name, the, the main character's name is Christian. So that's why I'm asking if you read it. It's a, it's there you a go. book. And it's just this whole journey about, it's an allegory of life where uh, Christian, the main character of the book, um, comes and uh, confusion comes and meets him along the road and offers him an easier way and all these characters with names, metaphors, and it's powerful. So here you are, Christian. <laughs> on, on your own journey in life on your own path so I'm, I'm honored to have you on man yeah i appreciate it man i really do so first of all how was uh how was it being on my brother's podcast he my he he's such a stud he is dude he's honestly I, he's probably got one of the biggest hearts of, of anybody i've ever met um wow. i always think back you know when during the time when we were talking about when we had the twins and we were going through our stuff Johnny was consistently one of the most regular people to check on me and just be like, love you, dude. I hope you're hanging in and praying for you. Like just a genuine selfless man. And like, he's totally the kind of people that I'm encouraged to connect with, to create community with. And it's like, that's the power of the social media thing. It's like how you and I are doing now. Yeah. The ability to be able to connect with such strong minded and, and big hearted people is like absolute blessing. And so, I mean, it was a blast. It was awesome being able to get on a show with him and talk about, you know, stuff with substance, having conversations like that is, is golden. It is so good. And, and isn't it interesting, you know, in this world where there's 320 million Americans, it seems like everyone's on social media, but 
and if you got to take a break with the kids, I know. Oh, no, you're good. Okay, no worries, man, because mine will pop in once in a while too. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, with so many people online, it's hard sometimes to feel like there's those like-minded individuals, you know, that you can rap and talk with. and, and it's cra- It is crazy because, I mean, and, and there are certain systems that, that social media uses, but how many times, like, you feel like a minority in whatever kind of uh, – you know, whatever kind of community that you get tied in, because they'll throw you out to try and get you into p- things that interest you, whether it be, you know, marketing companies, other people. But sometimes you like read stuff, you're like, gosh, am I like the only one that believes the things I believe? But then like you start picking up on it. And then when you find that gem of a person that you just hit with, you're like, dude, yes, yes I made it. Totally. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that um, we don't hear too much about anymore is, father being a father in our generation mm-hmm. and, and how and how old are you i'm almost 30 almost 30 so yeah. bro, you're you're young you're a young buck in this game i'm a young i'm a young buck dude to have the amount of kids and the life experience i do i'm young Which is beautiful. <laughs> I, and it's funny because it's something i always prayed for I, i've always you know i've always been wise beyond my years and as a as a younger man it really troubled me because i always thought i was bigger than i was and mm. god bless my oldest son he's the same way but um I look at myself now and it's like, I was telling, I was telling Johnny one time, it's like, I feel like most of my friends, most of my friends and people I associate with are over the age of 50, but that's also because I, I honestly find the most wisdom in genuine interaction with men from that generation. Like my pops, who's 64, 65 now. Wow. Like I grew up with the comfort of him showing me the value and integrity and accountability and hard work. And it's just, how that's gone by the wayside, I cling to it with like my dear life now. So when I find guys with character that value that, or some of them weren't even raised that way, it's just like, you know, there's guys like you that are just built like that. They get it. They have a passion for, for leadership, but also wisdom. And so you, you have a passion for being a student and a leader, which is, that's hard to come by because either people just want to learn everything and they don't want to take any initiative, or you got people that want to become only, you know, leaders only, and they have, Right. You know, they like to talk, they like the sound of their voice. They think they've got it figured out. So finding that middle line of people that are humble enough, but also instigate work first, those are, those are genuine people that I, I love connecting with. It is. I, you know, I've built probably, except for a few exceptions, um, guys that have been friends with for a while, but some of my closest friends I've met through. So I've never actually met, I've never been in physical presence to them, but I talk to guys, I zoom with guys all the time. I've done, you know, summits with guys and, um, all through this digital world. And I think, you know, as we're talking about generations, I got off a call earlier with a guy that's, um, in his mid to late sixties. And he was talking about that this generation of baby boomers has failed the, the following the um, generations that followed because they didn't steward well and you know mm-hmm. some like thankfully you got that steward mm-hmm. stewardship but what i said to them him is it doesn't matter what's come before us that, to, yeah. that that's blame that's victimhood that's you know this happened to me look we all can share stories of terrible things that have happened to us but it's i i'm seeing men and women be raised up right now of all colors, creeds, cultures, places around the world that are rising up and saying, the pain stops with me. Mm-hmm. 
the pain stops with me. It's, I'm not going to pass it on any longer. I'm going to do the inner work. I'm going to face what I need to face. I'm going to have the courage to step through those areas that have been taboo or um, just scary, you know, (laughs) scary. And and guys, especially like alpha male um, men don't usually talk emotional stuff because it's not perceived as um, manly. However, it's what every guy really wants is just to be told, Hey, you're okay. Let's, you know, just want to be ironically too. Like the thing that is so misconstrued about alpha males is they don't talk period. Every alpha true alpha male I've ever met. They don't boast. Mm -hmm. And especially spending time in the military, you come across quite a bit of alpha males. Yeah. Fortunately they're undervalued and they don't stick around long because they are undervalued Mm -hmm. and they're taken advantage of. Alpha males truly act on behalf of others before themselves and they act in a way that makes everybody around them better. Betas are the ones that get off, you know, they're often the ones that get labeled as alphas. They're the ones that talk a lot. They like to show, they like to, to they believe that they are the strength and they, they are, have no problem showcasing it. And that leads to so much downplay to those beneath them or those that look up to them thinking oh man, this guy's got it figured out. And that's what I figured out at a young age, probably because my dad was a great role model for me, but I watched him. And like, one of the things I remember as a kid is like, he'd take me to get donuts on Saturday mornings before, after basketball. And every, every time we went, I remember him stopping and giving a homeless man a couple bucks and like, you know, whether it be a sweatshirt that he had in his truck, like, and he knew he's like, you know, that guy might not, you know, he might have the wrong intentions, but it's the, it's the matter of principle of what are you doing? You, what if, what if that 27th time that you go give him five bucks, it finally clicks with him? Like this dude has been consistently helping me. Maybe I am better than what I believe I am. Mm. And you know, one good little gracious movement here and there. Sure. It's better than none, but what are you consistently doing to show up and improve upon your character to help others believe that they are better too. Mm. And that's one thing that I've learned is key with being an alpha is it's the selfless. It's the, it's being selfless. That's the biggest portion of it that is so misconstrued now. Um, and, and I hate it cause I like watch my kids and I think it's normal growing up. You see athletes, you see entertainers, you know, wrestlers growing up when I was a kid, you see the guys that were like the biggest, baddest, tallest, loudest. They were the strongest ones, right. which is so not true. I, right. and it's like Frank Lucas said, the loudest one in the wind, the, the loudest one in the room is the weakest one in the room. That's right. That's couldn't right. be, couldn't be more true. And, and you watch it play out in society right now. That's that most of the leaders and I hate saying leaders, but they have been put it on a pedestal as leaders because they've sold everybody that they are. They had a marketing tactic to make people believe that they were the alpha. They were the one that was fit for the position of being leadership. Right. And it's become less about showing. And if you can sell it, you got it. Right. Right. You know, that's a good point. My buddy, um, my really good friends, medically retired. I talk about him all the time. He's made such a big impact in my life. In fact, I really would not be here to this day had it wouldn't had it not been for him stepping into my life and and uh talking about opportunities he did to heal, but he was a 10-year medically retired Navy SEAL. And uh he said whenever he'd go to bars as a seal, he all, most of the seals, they, you know, they like to have fun, but he, they'd sit back and two things he would look at. He would look at a guy's shoes and look at the guy's hands. And if the guy was talking a lot and had 
laced up shoes, he knew the guy probably was able to back it up. <laughs> but if mm-hmm. the guy was talking a lot and had slip-ons or, you know, flip-flops or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like and too often guys that are running their mouth had flip-flops or, you know, <laughs> silly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that just makes me laugh. But tell me, uh, tell me your story, man. To share your story growing up and and what got you to where you are right now. Oh gosh, man. I mean, I'm I'm the I'm the farthest thing from self-made. Um, you know, when it comes down to the cloth, I was cut from. I was born uh, to my mom and biological father in '91. Uh, they were actually a college couple. I was not planned. Um, and I have a good relationship with my father, but he lives in California. He's remarried. Um, my mom remarried when I was probably, I think I was about five years old and my stepdad came into my life. I maintained a good relationship with my father, but my stepdad, uh, he stepped in and raised me, taught me the values, everything I am, you know, I, I really, and that's not to downplay what my, you know, what my dad, my biological father is, but when my stepdad came in, I hate even calling him stepdad because I feel like it's a disgrace to his role in my life, but he was just, uh, one of the most honorable men that I've ever had you know the absolute blessing to know mm. and uh had a great childhood was always well off you know i didn't never had to struggle for nothing my parents you know taught me the value of, of earning everything that i get um was pretty typical grew up playing sports going to church on sundays um but i took i took quite a turn once i hit my kind of my prepubescent years probably around 13 i started like i said i thought i was wise beyond my years i wanted to figure out everything on my own uh, pretty typical, but I took it to an extreme. Um, I ended up dropping out of high school when I was 16, uh, getting a full-time job and moving out. So like, I was like what they call a rare breed rebel. <laughs> like I was the one that was willing to go like earn my keep, but like still wanted to do things my way. So I was working at Subway and I ended up like getting a manager position. Uh, I was working 40 hours a week. I had enough money to you know support myself, but I was obviously with a bad crowd. I was usually hanging out with college kids. Uh, I shared an apartment with like three of my buddies who were all college age, I think like 20, 21, and I'm like 16. Wow. Um, and so that led into me having my first child uh, when I was 18, who my son is obviously now uh, 11 years old. Um, and that was like the biggest pivot point in my life because at that point, like I didn't clean up my act right away, but I knew I had to change something. And at that age, I was like, okay, so I've been hustling, doing this crap, like working at Subway isn't going to provide you know, health insurance. It's not going to give me the life I need to provide for a child. So I always in the back of my mind, especially growing up in the era of 9-11 was like, I had this call, you know, a call, a call to duty for my country. Mm. And so I was like, man, this is the opportunity. Like, this is kind of what I've always thought I was going to be built to do. And so I enlisted in the military at 18 years old. Wow. Um, shipped out i think when my son was maybe six months old it was uh, yeah he was about six months old so i left for basic training uh was gone for four months and like one of the things i really talk about was the shift i, I made um and the indoctrination of becoming you know a, a military a military member and it was I, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it and i know it's changed a lot now but when i went through the guys that were training me a lot of my drill sergeants were the guys that were on the you know, they were the ones that went through the initial push. Mm-hmm. These were guys that were 18 years old that were in Fallujah. When you saw those night cams rolling and, and just the 48 hour firefights where guys were pinned down for days without food, no support. Right. Right. These were the dudes that brought me in and they were so broken and they were so weathered mm-hmm. that it was a complete culture shock and they build it that way. But it was more than I think a lot of people bargained for to the point that, Within the first 48 hours, we had six 
six boys in my, uh, in my, just in my platoon alone that tried to commit suicide just on the indoctrination. I mean, it, it's, and I don't go into details about what it is, but they absolutely break you at a spiritual level. They, they do something to you to make you completely forfeit who you thought you were before you got there mm. and build off of that. And they instill anger and they instill grit and they instill, uh, almost a resistance to so much, you know, to any form of pain. Mm. Uh, so they combine physical, mental, and spiritual pain all at once so that it just becomes a whitewash that you learn how to turn off this switch, but it's almost becomes intermittent. So everything will be great all of a sudden snap. And they teach you that over the course of these six months of doing this stuff over and over again. And I remember the first time I saw my son on a family day, um, this was the heart, probably one of the hard, I, and I, it's ingrained into my brain, but I remember seeing my son across the room and this was something that they did about, I think three, three and a half months in, they let you have a break for like three days to go see your family. And I saw my son, my mom and my wife at the time, uh, my son's mother, and I didn't feel anything. I remember seeing them and I was expecting, I was so jacked up. I'm like, oh man, I finally get to see my family. And then it's like, when I finally saw them, it was like this, like there's no joy, there's no excitement. I couldn't smile. And then that in turn made me so angry. I was like, and they were, and I could tell they were like, what's going on? And it was like this, I couldn't turn the switch back on anymore. I didn't know how to have feelings. I didn't know how to have empathy. And I remember spending the weekend with them just trying, but it was like, I was just like, I was like this chaotic ball of, of testosterone. Like it was all, all I wanted was, was chaos anymore. And it was all I felt comfortable with. Mm. And so I went back and, and finished up obviously my initial training, which like boot camps, boot camp. But back at that time when I joined, it was a lot more serious than it is taken now. Mm. And I think that's because there was a need then to cultivate, types of soldiers that could weather the storm that was created in, in, in the warfare that we had going on. Um, especially just because of the generation that was teaching us and that was drilling us and doing all the stuff that we were doing those, I mean, those dudes were in one of the worst wars in, in American history right. outside of Vietnam, world war one, world war two, like OIF, OEF were, were horrible and they were, we were never winning those wars. Right. And so that's kind of what they taught us is that just to get comfortable being uncomfortable constantly. And anyways, all that came to a close and I came home, moved my wife and son out to Colorado to my first duty station, uh, beautiful Colorado Springs. It was like a dream unit. It's like where everybody wanted to go. It was absolutely beautiful out there. Um, and I served my four years. I ended up getting separating with my, my wife probably a year in because I, obviously I changed. I fell down the darkest hole that I had ever been in. And that's coming from, you know, in my teenage years going down some pretty dark roads where I'm, I was lucky that I wasn't dead or in prison. Uh, getting into drugs, certain, just, just terrible things at a younger age. This made that all look, you know, right. G rated to compared to the type of person that I became after I joined the military. And it, a lot of it was, was coping mechanisms, but it was also like, they tailor you that way for a reason, you know? Yeah. And I was a combat arms, you know, uh, my MOS, I was a scout. So, I mean, it was, it was essentially the same thing as infantry, except we did reconnaissance. And so, drinking fighting it was all it was kind of like what they what they teach you is like best for you and especially you're already at that age 19 20 21 years old like those are the years your peak testosterone levels and yeah you're just ready to go and so i mean i really hit a uh, i really hit rock bottom at that point um my wife at that time we separated she took my son home and that's kind of when i lost it and spiritually that was the darkest time in my life and i i remember specifically there being a night where I'd, I think like I said, I'd always, I'd always been raised in church, but 
I had never established a personal relationship with Christ. I just kind of curtailed what my parents had, had developed. You know, I, yeah. I believed in God. I knew he, I knew he was real, but never took the initiative to actually seek what a relationship with Christ would be like. Mm. And I remember being in an apartment in my apartment at that time. And I think I had maybe a year and a half left in my service. Um, and all this stuff's going on I'm in the middle of the divorce. I lost my son. Haven't seen him. I'd never get to see him. You know, FaceTime calls were about all we got. Right. And, uh, I remember it being like one in the morning and I'm sitting in my, in my apartment. And all I had was like a Tupperware table for, or, a, a like a Rubbermaid little thing that I had for a, a dining table, a couch, a TV in my bed. And it was, there was nothing in it, no tables, nothing like that. Yeah. And my mattress was on the floor. I had no, no furniture in my room. And I just remember sitting there that night and I felt this weight on my chest. And I remember just feeling completely consumed, like the devil's taking me, like he is trying to make this a surefire consumption of my soul. And I, I literally felt it. And at that point, I remember standing up and just getting on my knees and I, I came to tears and I just, I said, no, I belong to Christ. And it was, I don't know what made me do that because I hadn't developed a relationship with Christ yet, but I knew that I had to overcome this in order to become better than what I was being. Mm. and. It was like, I tell this story to people just because I feel like it's a true testimony of what God can do. But I remember after saying that verbally out loud, um, the room started glowing. I mean, there was just like this yellow aura around the room and I got this, this comfort and this feeling and the pressure and pain went away. And it was like this complete rebirth in the flesh. I, I physically felt the weight lift off my shoulders and this comfort and security of you're going to be okay. And at that point forward, like my life started to rebuild within a few short months, I met my, who is my wife now, who was going through a very similar process in her life, some very, very dark times, who also was coming to Christ in the same way. And our lives had been paralleled the entire way. And so as I'm kind of being escorted on my way out of the military, the last, the last year or so, we developed a great friendship. Uh, we kind of grew up in the same circles. And so when I got home, I had another hard time transitioning just because it was still that same thing. If I came home, I was, got my son. I got us a place. I was raising him. I went to college, used my GI bill to get a, a criminal justice degree. Awesome. Uh, I was trying to get on with some police departments and that whole time, you know, we had, me and my wife had, had established a, a really good relationship and then we started dating. And so we had been good friends for about a year and a half, two years before we started dating. And then from there, once we met, it was just, uh, that's when our life kind of unfolded. We ended up getting our first place together. Um, she had a, a son from a, a previous relationship. I had my son um, and we became a family. I've, been, I, I've raised, I, I consider my son, but I've raised her son since he was like a year old. Wow. And then, uh, you know, life kind of picked up from there. I ended up getting into the electrical apprenticeship, became an electrician about five, uh, six years ago. And, and uh, then up until this last year, I mean, we bought our house two years after we got married, we've been married almost five years now. And, uh, then we had the twins last year and that's probably like one of the greatest testimonies of our faith ever, you know, the Lord's work that was, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's a, that's a long winded story to go on top but most people that have heard of me have heard about my twins. And that's probably one of my, one of my favorite things to attest my faith to and to, to really describe the mercy and love of God is from the gift that he was given that he gave us through them. Mm. So that was, and that was, we, I know we had talked b about that briefly and I've talked about it with Johnny and people may have heard that show, but, um, both my twins had, I want to say they had less than a 10% survival rate 
from the time that we found out that we were having twins to, I think it was like within six weeks of that, they discovered that they had twin to twin, which is where they share a placenta, but one is severely uh, lacking fluid and it's severely lacking nutrients. And so it essentially becomes a donor. And one of the boys was feeding all his nutrients and blood flow to the other baby. So what it creates is an oversupply of blood to one baby and a lack of baby. Like essentially one of my boys was shrink wrapped in his amniotic sac. And so we had to go up to Washington, see specialists and they kept talking about, well, if we do the surgery, it's probably going to be a chance that you'll need to deliver one baby. Um, and I mean, this entire time I've never spent as much time in prayer, which mm. is something that I always have a hard time dealing with because it should never be just the hard times that we pray that hard. But I mean, just, you know, naturally that's just how we are as human beings. We, yeah. we grip, we grip the word and, and we cling to the Lord when things get tough. And that time tested my faith on such, on such an extreme level. I've never been as exhausted. I've never been as scared as I was during those months, but she ended up delivering, I want to say like 29 weeks, her water broke. And after all this stuff that we've been going through, she had to get amnio reductions. I mean, they were removing fluid from her, uh, from the amniotic sacs in the, in the children. That means actually putting a needle through her stomach, removing the fluid three different times. And so you're talking, I mean, it was just, we were in the doctor's office every other day and, on top of finances being outstanding. I mean, we're talking probably a million dollars just in during the pre-pregnancy um, or excuse me, during the pregnancy. And then right before we got, we delivered, it was, I think it was just an outstanding. It was like three quarter million dollars in bills that we'd already accrued just from seeing specialists and all this other stuff. And then her water breaks at 29 weeks and we're like, this is never going to get better. And so <clears throat> she ended up delivering them, had to, um, one was born two pounds, one was four pounds. And I remember seeing the first one and it, he's still a little, he's just, he was the donor. Uh, but I could, I, he, I could fit him in the palm of my hand. I remember when I saw him, it just shook my world. It completely made me feel like the smallest thing on earth. And even though it was for a few seconds, I just remember seeing them. And at that age, when they're born that young, they can't breathe on their own and they can't see their eyes and their lungs haven't fully developed. And so my wife had to obviously have an emergency C-section. So she's kind of out of, so I'm running back and forth, trying to watch them supply oxygen to the babies make sure she's okay, running back and forth. Um, and then after that point, both the boys spent, uh, one spent 69 days in the NICU. The other one was seven, 78. I can't remember exactly, but he was there for a week and a half or, or two weeks more. And, that time, if we weren't tested enough in the pregnancy, watching how many people walked out of there without their child was spiritually one of the most test, one of the greatest tests that we've had. Because I mean, you're talking about people that went through the same circumstances, fought that whole way, and then their their baby just couldn't fight. They just didn't have the fight anymore. They didn't have they didn't have the resources to make it and at that point, I, I can't say that there was any better ground for me and my wife to forge the marriage that we have now. Yeah. It was something that bonded us in a way that it was unfortunate, but it was also one of the biggest blessings that we've been given to our family, even with our older boys. It just, the, the way that they were given to us and they were brought into this world was so humbling. It was so graceful, but it makes you count your blessings and it makes you, I, it sounds weird. I always sound like, it sounds like I don't value my other children, but it makes you realize how much you overlook how precious a child's life is and, and, 
and especially the woman that carries them, everything that, that they have to endure to get through that point. Mm. And so, I mean, here we are, um, twins are 10 months old and teething and chaos. And now it's just nothing but screaming and poopy diapers in my house. (laughs) (laughs) So it all led to the happy ending that we know is just the family, you know, building the foundation of family, a generation of men that I hope to raise as, as great as my father, you know, did with me. Four boys, four, four boys. You know, First of all, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I honor, I honor you sharing that story. And there's a lot of things that that came to mind while you're sharing. There's the story of your faith. There's the, you said, you know, you hate that it is that way that you pray harder when times, you know, cling to God, cling to the Lord when th- times are hard. Um, there's, you said a lot, but. It, one of the things I just want to share with you is that there are so many fathers out there that were a vessel to bring life, but they weren't a father. Mm -hmm. And you got to witness that precious and tender moment of bringing the life in, but you also got to see people not be able to keep it of no fault of their own, but walk out of that. And I think just listening to you and just getting back to what we're talking about before we recorded is we need to have, we get to be fathers that encourage other men to be fathers again. And I can, I get, I could cry right now, actually just hearing your story, brother. just, uh, if men heal, I believe this with every fiber of my being, when men heal, the world heals. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe men are the origin of pain in this world, either by abstaining from uh, being present or actually inflicting intentionally pain upon uh, another. And that could be their children. That could be to women. That could be whatever. But I think, you know, when the story of Adam and Eve, when, you know, the, the serpent comes to Eve first and says, you know, are you sure God said that? You're not, you're not surely going to die. You know, God just know that you eat thereof. Your eyes should be open. You should be like, God's, so he gives it to Eve and gives Eve the fruit and Eve's eyes are open. She gives it to her husband and his eyes are open. But one thing that always strikes me is that logically, practically, legally, God goes to Adam first and asked him, what did he do before he goes to Eve? Mm-hmm. It's Adam's role was to protect mm-hmm. the sovereignty and sanctity. And he was given that command. He was given that we are command. Gi- we are given that command. Yes. And I've heard, you know, Eve said, you know, whatever, all this blame, but here's the, here's the thing is the, the formula is God goes to man first and says, what is, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Man, here's the full, here's the fulcrum. Everyone listening. Here's the fulcrum. Every day we get to listen, wake up and whether you believe in God or not, this is about responsibility. This is about acknowledging your and our roles of what we create in this world. God says, what did you do? And Adam, instead of saying, hey, I blew it. I, <laughs> I wasn't where I was supposed to be when I was supposed to be there. Or I watched it happen. I was passive. I wasn't active. He says, the woman gave, it, gave me the fruit and I did eat. So then God logically goes to the woman. <laughs> so, okay, what did you do? Not it has anything to do with the man. Mm-hmm. This is a one-on-one squared up like 
what did you do? And, and the woman says, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat of the fruit. And hearing your story of, you know, a father, and, and I, I realize you're not, there's no knock on him, but, you know, your father that wasn't there, you know, consistently, your stepfather. And I, and I do acknowledge that that's not the right term. In fact, I don't even know where those, that origin of that term came in because it's not proper and it's not, no, it's not based in love. Love is that there's no step anything. It's just, that's your, it's the legal term. That's all I ever chalk it up to be. It's a legal term. And you were given two fathers. You were given a biological portal into this world Mm -hmm. and, and a cool biological portal. It sounds like, Mm -hmm. but you were also, God waited for you to be five until he gave you, he worked you to be ready for that father. And yeah, I guess I just want to acknowledge you and, and every, every male out there that is a father or is going to be a father or is thinking about being a father is man. I, I just want to see us all heal. So it doesn't mm-hmm. pass on any longer the pain to our children, the pain to our wives and then raise up this beautiful generation that can be, man, just be, just be with others, not worry about what others think, but just be there present with them, look at them, listen to them, feel them, stand with them, hold them up. And um, I just, man, I'm just really touched by your story. And um, there's obviously there's no accidents, right? There's no accidents you were given four men no. with this yeah. journey to steward well in this life. And, and at one point <laughs> I remember <clears throat> right after we had the twins, I remember my pastor had came to me and he said, uh, he had reiterated something that was said when I, I was rebaptized. I was baptized as a child, but I got rebaptized two and a half years ago with my wife and my oldest son. Cool. Um, we all got baptized on the same day. And at that time, one of the elders, uh, after he baptized me, he pulled me out of the water and he put his hand on my shoulder and he gave me a hug and he said, son, you've just been, you've just been put on the armor of God. And he's like, and he's like, and I see something on you that you are meant to lead an army. And he's like, and you will be given an army. God just entrusted you with the lives of men. And I remember him saying, this is before the twins. So when he said that, I was just like, Oh wow. I mean, that's, this is an elder of the church. This is a man who has so much spiritual wisdom and life wisdom in general and so I remember I'm like, oh man, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility here. I am with these boys. And I'm like, that's what he meant. My pastor came back and he said something to me a couple months back, maybe about a year back uh, as the twins were coming. And he said, God is entrusting you with an army. He is building you up to lead. And I remember being like, God, that's a lot of pressure. Gosh, dang. Like <laughs> I'm like yeah. to lead an army. What, why am I, why am I the one that, but the more that I trust in that, the more I pray on becoming whatever that is that is needed to be. It's not my will. It's only God's will. The only thing that I strive to be is what God's will is for me to be. And to touch on something you said, because for any men that are listening to this, I try and praise it as much as I can when I hear, and especially when I see it, but men that are raising another man's child, God bless you. I mean, there is, because I speak personally, but I also myself, I have raised, I have raised one of my sons and he calls me dad. He knows me as dad. Mm who's not biologically mine, but the relationship, the trust and the chosen love. It's not a biological love. We all know what it's like to have a child that you are biologically connected to. And there's an undying love. But when you choose to love a child, when you choose to sacrifice your life for another child, they feel that. Mm -hmm. And it is reciprocated. The The relationship I have 
with my son, who is not biologically mine, is in many ways stronger than any of my biological sons. We butt heads more the same way that me and my, my stepfather did, but there is a reward greater than what is given through a biological child. And that's, that's not to downplay anything on, on my biological kids, but the power of having, having these boys that look up to us, they subconsciously recognize what we are giving them. And more so than, you know, biological kids will look to me like, well, that's my daddy's supposed to do that. Yeah. But when there's other boys, it doesn't, it, it could be a nephew. It can be anybody that's looking up to you, nephews, nieces. Um, there's children all over the world right now that need leadership and they need men. Yeah. They need men that can step up and show them what love feels like. Yeah. They need, they need men to step up and show them what it is to be accountable, what integrity means. If, if there's one thing that's been lost in this, in this, generation that's being developed now it's integrity yeah. it's it's the importance of doing the right thing even when everybody else around you isn't doing it or because they say it's wrong that's right and that's been so tested it's been it's been brutal it's been brutal for anybody to stand for anything they believe especially spiritually yeah um if you stand for anything in principle now you'll be cast out i mean that's and if you read the bible all of jesus's prophets all of his followers look what happened to them they were cast out they were shamed they were stoned yeah and if you want to read the Bible, that's a good place to start because you can parallel to a lot about what's happening right now when you stand for principle. And I think as fathers, you, you have to enforce that in your kids as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, which is a hard thing because they don't see it and they don't understand yet, especially at a, at, at a young age. But with my oldest son, he's finally starting to pick that up of how important that is. And one verse that I read with him and I'll share with you real quick, but it's in first John one eight, and it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Mm. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Mm. If we claim we have not sinned, if we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Mm. If the, I mean that every time I read that, I, I actually have it set on an alarm every morning I wake up, I read that wow. because it means something in, in, in day-to-day life. We, <clears throat> it's accountability. <laughs> the, the the entire purpose of that of those verses is accountability. It's right. it's self-reflecting and knowing you are a born sinner, but you're saved only by the salvation of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. And that love that we share with our children ought to align with the exact love that he shared for us by sending his son. And if that's not the perfect textbook, you know, guidance to to how to father, how to lead, how to love everyone that that depends on you, I don't know what is. Right. Brother. There's so much, um, <clears throat> I, I did this, uh, I told everyone, may, may we all be sinners. May we all, I, I gave this talk a few years ago called living gray in a black and white world where I used to, um, live black and white in a gray world. I used to strive like, and, and I've over time, whatever the lessons, life and, and trauma healing have realized that it's about living gray in a black and white world that we're never a polarity. We're never an absolute. We're never can claim like, this is the stake. I am, you know, I've arrived, but we can walk towards one or the other. You know, we can walk towards healing or we can walk towards pain. We can walk towards goodness or we can walk towards, you know, whatever the opposite of goodness is evil or, or whatever we want to say. But one of the things that uh, this old rabbi said, may we all be hypocrites for, no one is the absolute what they claim. Nope. However, 
may no one claim they are the absolute for that is the worst hypocrite of all. So it's kind of a funny Jewish way to think. May we all strive to be hypocrites. May we all strive to be better than we are, but let no man claim that he is what he strives for, for that is the greatest hypocrite of all. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I know. I know. I say that, especially if you talk to, you know, to the, uh, you talk to a lot of people of, of the Christian church, a lot of times, I mean, and it's not as extreme as, as Catholicism, like we've talked about, but the rules, the boundaries, you know, the, our commandments, right. the, the principles we're supposed to live by. A lot of people like to pretend that they're doing it every day, that they're doing it right. right. You ain't doing it right. <laughs> you weren't born into that body. That's not, that's not what you were born into. Your skin is, your skin is tainted from the time you're brought into this world. And that's the hard, I think that's the hardest part for people is to acknowledge that they're not perfect or that they, there's no way to achieve it. The only right. way to achieve it is through accepting your, your you know, the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. Accepting the even Bible. then to some, so to some people, that's not enough. Yeah. Well, there's a need, there's a need for, there's a need for that. Um, I don't even know what you would call it. There's a need for that. I guess it would be validation that they, that they feel that they have achieved what they need to achieve in order to be accepted by Jesus Christ. And even though that they say they don't, how many, how many continue to try and fulfill that void? Right. Well, here is where it comes down to men in healthy relationship with a male figure in children's lives. The reason why people, from my perspective and what I help men heal with that, all we want, every single person, I believe this, every single person on planet earth, every human being that breathes the same air just wants to be loved and known. That's it. They just want to be loved and known even the the most vitriolic human viscerally like evil person that person at the end somewhere is seeking that being loved and known with wherever they're finding it the gang member finds being loved and typically known. they and typically they need it the most yes That's exactly, exactly what they're lacking exactly right however and this is funny because you're saying that even with that understanding of of the love of god they won't or the right and doing the right things, but they're still continuing to do the right things, even though they've accepted this narrative of, of love, God's love is that they equate love from doing still they equate like, well, just tell me what I just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it because I want to be loved more than anything. And the irony is no love precedes you doing anything. Mm-hmm. And that is when it's like the lifeguard will not save a drowning victim in the water until the person <laughs> gives up. Because if he, if the lifeguard grabs the drowning person and they're flailing their arms, they'll grab the lifeguard and they'll both drown. Mm-hmm. And it's love. God's love waits for humanity to say, yeah, cool. You've done it all. Yeah. Cool. You've checked all the boxes. Yeah. Cool. And you could be the wealthiest, smartest, most intelligent, effective. You know, you could be the greatest hunter. You could be the greatest philosopher. You could be the greatest whatever. And still avoid. Still avoid. Yeah. Still avoid. And that's why I was talking to someone. It's God so loved the world. And love in Hebrew means a hava. The Hebrew word for love in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is a hava, which means to give. Mm-hmm. so love when does love not give it always gives giving mm-hmm. always gives the minute it ceases to give it's not love so mm-hmm. 
Love has always loved us. God has always loved us. And until we can surrender that we are loved, people, and especially males, will keep trying to strive and build the next generation of children to get the love from the striver mm-hmm. <laughs> and create strivees. <laughs> and those strivees mm-hmm. want to get the love from the striver and then they become strivers themselves and they create more strivees. Until- it's centrifugal, huh? Yes, exactly on, right. On both ends of the spectrum. Yes. On, on- and, yes. it, and it totally it totally feeds itself. It's a never-ending cycle. Never-ending. And it's just like awesome. we talked about before we started this is, is when do you break the cycle? And I've always said, and I've witnessed, I won't, won't name like the people in my life, but I've, I've noticed people in my life who have come from less, they've come from homes where there, was not that, there wasn't that love. But they also love twice as much because they know what that lack is, is like. So for me, I've always questioned, if you know what that lacking is feels like, if you've person, personally encountered it, why do you not employ it now? Why, if you have children, if you have people that look up to you, why do you not have a passion to change that and be, to fill that void on, on an, such an extravagant level that someone never even has to question what that feels like. Yeah. And, and I, it's kind of like you said, <coughs> it's, it, it goes back to though, who are you trying to please? That's exactly right. Who are you doing it for? What's your intent? That's right. That's right. Cause we, we come into this world by ourselves, even though we're, we're held by, you know, usually parents, but and we're going mm-hmm. out this world by ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not holding on, We're not holding the hands of our wives. We're not holding the hands of our children. We're, our hands are attached to this body. We're going out the way we came in and that's by ourselves to give account for what we did. And, mm-hmm. and I think for most men and women, but specifically just staying with men, um, I think they just need to be given the permission to heal and in a safe space. That's why I lead men's retreats and summits is guys has come real alpha. I mean, butt kicking military veterans to, you know, accountants or wherever, just the normal, just the normal guy, but getting away and, and me, I'm a, I'm a big guy. I'm almost six, four, two, mm-hmm. two thirty Like I'm a big guy. And when I can, stand there in front of them and take my mask off and talk about the things I've gone through and what it takes to heal as a man and to face and get that trauma out. And they're, they're like, wait, at first, like, wait, what? Cause it's so foreign. And what this world says is stuff it in, suck it up, tough it out, mm-hmm. be, be harder. Well, that is the antithesis to healing, which is the antithesis to generational healing because a big, and I talk about this on the podcast, you see the bull, the, the bull runs in Spain or the, the bull fights, they keep rings in those bulls nose because it doesn't matter how big and strong and powerful that animal is. If you put your finger in that ring, you could bring that bull literally to its knees in its height of anger because it's so sensitive right here. Mm-hmm. And it's like these big, men that have worked on the physical have worked on sucking it up, but they still have a great weakness that can make them crash at any moment. And for me, I have three kids. I have a daughter, son and daughter, and Mm -hmm. it is literally um, a miracle for me and for my oldest daughter that I was given a girl, not a boy at first, because I I couldn't bathe my I couldn't even be around my kids for the first five years of all three of their lives. They were born at three kids. I could never even be around them if they're in the bathroom, if they're, I could barely change a diaper. I was struggling so badly. And, uh, but as they got older, that the anger that 
rose in me wasn't anger at them. It was matching or mirroring the anger that I saw in the action. This is how weird and psychological things are or generational curses, whatever you want to call it. My, the anger that arose in me was what I witnessed as the perceived way to be to a child of my age then. So my children are representing me and I am representing the anger that was given to me. And I didn't want to be angry at them. I didn't want to hurt them, but I was so angry at the things that happened to me. It was really just a, a war to fight, to like not be, not be violent, not be terrible. And I really had to go in and heal. And one of the things that I learned, I get talk about this in my podcast or my Ted talk, the three steps to healing, I believe for anything to break the cycle of any trauma, any pain, anything is a three. And I don't, it just happens to be three things. If it was five, if it was 20, I would say these, but it happens to be three is you got to face the pain. Mm-hmm. You have to look at it in the eye. You got to go into the darkness. You got to stare at it and turn around in your mind's eye, whatever it is, and look at that, those moments you were hurt the worst. And then you got to speak the pain. You got to, in a safe space, not you, we, us as men specifically, scream our guts, like, ah, just, ah, just get it out. All that anger, all that repressed rage and anger when we couldn't speak, when we wanted to speak, when we couldn't, you know, just be quiet, suck it up and get that out. And then third step, release the pain. And I mean, doing all this in a safe environment away from <laughs> your family, you know, but being around men to, to release that pain. And I thought about this the other day. I saw my wife, Oh, this is the model. Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane knowing full well what's going to happen. And he faces it head on. He knows what's going to happen. And he faces the pain. Mm-hmm. And then he speaks the pain and asks God, may it pass from me. And he's sweating blood. You know, he's, he's hardcore. He's facing it. Mm-hmm. He speaks it. Let it pass from me if it's possible. And then he releases it. Mm-hmm. Not my will, but your will be done. That's that step of facing, speaking, and releasing. And um, it's been quite a journey for me. And, and I don't know, I just, I'm sharing this. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. Just sharing as two fathers dealing with stuff and raising kids and, you know, raising sons that I've really had to work. Um, my son is, I told my wife today, he calls me daddy. And I get choked up right now. Like, man, I'm a daddy. I'm not a dad. I'm a daddy. I'm like, man, that's a, that's a sweet gift that I got. And it doesn't mean for everyone. Title. Yeah. Honorable. And I grew up where pain was the mark of valor or pain, inflicting pain. I remember I had a grandfather. I never, he never let me hug him. He would just hurt me. As a little kid, I was, he would squeeze the softness in my hand and squeeze it as hard as I could till I'd cry and <laughs> tell me to tough it out. I'm like, what the, what the fudge? Like, that's, the, that, that's, the, that's the emphasis of that generation though. Oh they call, I, saw, I saw someone today that said that it was like, the World War II generation was just like, it'll quit bleeding at some point. And then you had the <laughs> yeah. boomer generation that was like, you'll get over it. Like yeah. that's literally what you're nailing it on the head. That's exactly yeah. what the, the mentality was for men. Yeah. And then look at the world we've, we've 
we're in right now. And and you think about it at one point though, you know, com- coming from the Great Depression, those generations, they were forced to that was their that was their method of survival mm. was to quit feeling pain, to be tough, but it never ended. <clears throat> and it transitioned. And it, and like you said, it's generational. It passed on and passed on where pain was no longer. I mean, pain's always existent, but I mean, back then you're talking about it at such an extreme level. It was the only way that men could provide and still be sane. I guess maybe sane is with you what you want to call it. Yeah. But it did, it, it transitioned and it was passed down. And, but what you're saying, your test, your testament is exactly to the power of vulnerability. Definitely. And that's what I try and preach when I talk with people. It's the strength in facing your demon face to face and gritting your teeth back saying, nope. Yes, that's right. Not anymore. That's right. But that's right. actually saying it because a lot of people will face their demons and then they'll go toe to toe and then they just keep backing down. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable knowing what I know, but I don't, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable when you have to face a demon like that. It is terrifying. And I can say that because firsthand when I came to Christ, that's what I dealt with mm-hmm. as I looked at myself and what I think I saw that night when I was saved was myself. I saw the demon that had possessed me, the evil that was in my soul, the mm-hmm. evil that had consumed me. And it was absolutely terrifying because you don't feel like you have control. But the thing is, is that you have to have the confidence in knowing that you do. Yeah. And that if you don't take control, You'll never have control. And the one part that you can't teach someone is to value those that count on you. Mm. And the beauty of children is just that. It's like when you talk about the honorable role of daddy. I mean, (laughs) dude, there is nothing more fulfilling than seeing your sons look up to you, just watch you. I mean, just even watching you. You'll be out mowing the yard and they'll just be watching like, oh, what's he doing? Yeah. Yeah. But it's the same with it. You know, that that's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be you know, lead by actions. I'm, I am far from a perfect father. I raise my voice. I get angry. I get impatient. Um, but I always, I, Oh, I always make it a priority to reinforce with love. If I snap and I raise my voice or I, I get rude or, you know, whatever, I always let myself face my problem, take accountability for it. And then I go back and I'm always, I'm not obviously going to go tell them like, you know, daddy was wrong, but I go up and I say, Hey, I love you. I, I snapped on you because I love you and because I care and I handled it. And I know next time just understand this is what happens. Yeah. But that's the, that's the key piece because we're never going to be perfect men. We're going to get angry. We're going to get short, you know, we're going to get short on patience. Yeah. And there's so many other, uh, variables, you know, that get added into our lives as leaders of, of a family. Right. So it's just important to always like reinforce on that fact that you can't make them responsible for your pain because that is exactly the root of more of the problems that you're talking about is, right. is making a kid feel like yes. they are responsible for your anger That's or right. they don't know how, they don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do. All the, it's like you said, as, as children, we read emotion, we read not necessarily physical action, but the emotion and intent behind Energy, it. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I would tell, I feel like up until I really faced um, the darkest stuff. So I'm 38. It wasn't until, so in 34 years old, I started going to a therapist every single week for two years straight, sometimes twice a week. And then 36 years old, um, I went to an emotional intelligence training where really I had, for me, a born again experience where I, I shared things that I had never shared before to anyone out of my mouth. I had never uttered some of the stuff and it was a safe place and people loved me through it. And when I said it, I was like, <sighs> like I could breathe. And I, I mean, it was just incredibly powerful, but so you were in front of other people having to say it, 75 though. people. I, I didn't, Oh my gosh, my wife and I've shared 
I think I've shared this in the podcast. I was talking to my wife about it last night. I was going to kill myself if I did, if it didn't work because I had read the Bible seven times cover to cover. I had fasted every single Monday from Sunday night to Tuesday morning for five years straight. I had read every Christian classic book. I have, I had done, I had preached. I, I I'd done all the things I'd striven so hard for holiness for to be finally to get to this place where you know, I'd hear, read it. I could give a sermon about the love of God, but I didn't know the love of God. I knew grit it out, suck it up, grind it, keep going. I, I knew that, but that only got me so far. And so I went down to this place and um, when I was 20, I attempted suicide. And then I've always been suicidal, especially when I had more ki- when I had my children, I couldn't bathe them. And I was struggling like, what's wrong with me? Something like, I thought I was inherently, broken like my mind didn't work the way everyone else's work i'm i'm a broken i'm i don't mean like i'm broken i mean no one knows if you knew like how broken i am you know no one would want to be around me i didn't want to be around me quite frankly and uh i went to this thing and if it didn't if it didn't change i wasn't going to come home so i went down hard (laughs) and this program i know then they they had no idea what was about to hit them. And I went hard. So I didn't care anymore. And my buddy, the Navy SEAL told, told was the one he called me one night crying. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, who are you? And, <laughs> and uh, he tells me about this thing. And so I went and I had a very similar experience, very powerful. But why I'm bringing all that up is um, facing it and I think it comes to a point where you cannot care what any other person thinks of us any longer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you approve of what I say or not. It doesn't matter if I approve of you. It does not matter. As men, we got to come to the place that if I don't heal and I don't get free, if I don't break free these chains and this bondage and this cloud and this tar and this slime and this, this never-ending wrestling we have to break free of that or the solution is that suicide is the highest it's ever been in men it's, it's 70 80 percent of all 79 percent of all suicides in the united states are men it's probably higher right now with all this stuff i remember being a kid and thinking i will hang i will hang myself um in my bedroom and i and i know that the children's suicide is higher right now with this quarantine and lockdown and the news isn't covering it. People, people don't want to talk about the real things that would, you know, break this nation down to its knees and grieving and repentance and, and humbling ourselves of what is happening. And I share all that to say, as you share your story, as I share my story, we're being permission for other men and other women and, and other people listening to share their stories. And, and I'm honored to have you on man. And, and I'm honored to call you a brother and walk with you. And, and, uh, I just, uh, man, I feel emotional. This is a episode. I feel like I hang up and see, you. I might cry afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, I'm just thankful to hear your story. And, um, I would say to you this, that what I've learned is, it's okay to tell your kids that you messed up mm-hmm. because no one's perfect and we are not perfect and they need to know that we're not perfect. And, and that's one of the things I wish I would have gotten. Uh, I, not that I need it anymore, but just to be told, Hey, I'm sorry. I really screwed up. And, 
And um, not that I'm telling you to do that, but just yeah, it's nothing. That's wrong. a good encourage. It's, it's a good encouragement. Wrong with telling our kids, hey, I haven't blew it. Like I am not a perfect yeah. person, but I'm working towards healing, and I love you. And you know, you work towards healing. And um, however that needs to be said, but uh, I just I love love you, brother, and I love the story that you shared, and and I just. Dude, what an, I mean, it truly is what an extension of an, of an absolute blessing, you know, for sure, brother. And then the power of getting to chat with you and I mean, gosh, dang, man, you guys, you guys are, are uh, you are, you are a gift. You're gifted as leaders. You're gifted as men that, that live, that live profoundly through the love of Christ and you exemplified it in extraordinary ways. And not everyone's built to do it in such an, you know, extreme capacity that you do, because what you just said, being able to come out in front of seven you would have never caught me doing that. What I did was in the solidarity of my, of my own place by myself, ask me to do that in front of a crowd of people. I don't know that I ever would have done it. So therefore I don't know that I ever would have been saved. I don't know that I ever would have been cleansed. There would ever would have been a revival in me. Mm. Um, but that speaks profoundly about the character that, that you hold and what your purpose is. That was exactly if I, I would say that's pretty indicative of what Christ is, has delivered you to be and mm. to listen to you speak how educated you are, how passionate you are, but how, how compelled you are to build community, which is what I love. That's what has been the best part about this is that our passion really is to create a greater generation of men. Yeah. Not yeah. just our children, but our generation. That's right now. Like it's you, it is never too late to turn around, take accountability and, and start being the light that people need. That's right. And I try, I started using that hashtag on social media and I need to use it more, but being the light, just be the light. Hmm. it's and i it's one thing when i go back to talking about my dad is he used to say son sometimes it isn't five bucks sometimes it's a smile your smile to someone that's sitting on the corner you're smiling at the coffee shop you know whatever it is you saying hey you know have a wonderful day that small instance is exactly what could save somebody's life yes because someone could be on the ropes and that could be the one little glimmering you know, piece of hope that someone's like, yeah. there is a good person in this world that, you know, that's willing to look out for me. Mm. And it's it, it, what we talked about. It's centrifugal that that is everlasting. It gets passed on from one person to another. And even if it doesn't, you're spreading that light and you're trying to, to plant as many seeds as you can along the way. And that's all we can do. That's right. That's right. That's all. And what a great, and if that's all we can do, that is the greatest thing we can do because it's awesome, you know, yeah, love people. And, and, um, brother, I'm so honored to have you on and how can people find you? You're, I love, uh, we didn't even, you know, let it be a surprise when they go to your Instagram. We didn't get into like what you're doing on Instagram, which is amazing. And that's how you and my bro connected, but uh, how can people find you and follow you and connect with you? So I, I really only frequent uh, Instagram anymore. I, I try it's everything's gotten so political now. And I've, I really try and just stick to like what we said, the goal is to just build community. So you can find me on Instagram at rev dot Armstrong. Um, I mean, that's really the only, I don't do much Facebook. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't do much of that stuff, but um, I like photography. I like doing videography and I like having conversations with good men like yourself. So that's, that's where you're going to find me doing my thing. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, I'll make sure to put, uh, put your Instagram handle or the link in the show notes. And um, I'm, I'm honored to have you on brother. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have to do it again for sure. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Wow, brother. Thank you so much for joining everyone. I hope you are blessed. I declare the blessing of love on you all. Blessings and blessings of love. When you bless someone with love, you have 
stood in the highest authority, the highest power that is rightfully yours when you allow love inside yourself, therefore you can give love outside yourself. My name is Lucas Mack. This is the Golden Rule Revolution where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. I look forward to talking with you on the next episode.